All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Doing really well, Jeff. Uh, you know, I think we've been talking about school started and you would normally think that it, the fall is here, but given the 95 degree heat this past uh, today, today's Sunday, it's, um, it doesn't feel like fall at all. Uh, other than the leaves falling into the pool as I'm sitting there reading about rhetoric and watching my kids swim. Um, or watching them be watched by the lifeguard. So it's, um, you know, I'm ready for fall to start, to be a little crisper, a little cooler for the football of the games to, to come back into focus. And um, I think we've got a guest here to kind of help us get used to getting back to school, a student from the University of Florida, Scott Howard, am I correct? You are. I'm happy to be on. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Um, so I reached out. Uh, you've been on the show before. Um, you write for some some outlets out there uh i think freelance right is that what they yeah. call it yeah um and you had tweeted something earlier i think it was last week or this week that kind of caught my attention so i was like hey why don't you come on the show and let's talk about that um but before we we dive into that why don't you just uh let the people know a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to well jeff i'm happy to come back on it's always fun talking to you guys uh for those who don't know me uh, my name is scott howard i am a senior at the university of florida as john mentioned um i'm a student of political science i want to be a journalist i'm also excited for the fall to start given the heat and the rain that the recent hurricane has brought gainesville um but we won't we won't get cool weather till like halloween so i've got another couple months of 95 degree humid weather um i think that's that's something important about me yeah so john you're complaining about how hot it is here could you imagine what it's like in the other gainesville <laughs> unbearable unbearable i think um but you know you, you pick that when you go to florida you don't really pick True. That there were you... there were trade-offs uh, the beach the beach was a positive the the heat was was the other side of that equation yeah so uh so the tweet that I wanted to get into, uh, it's, you tweeted out, it says six days ago now, uh, some free advice to all the rich kids playing populist in their private universities. Go take wood shop. Spend a summer throwing hay bales. Take an hour at Home Depot and see how many tools you can identify. Then reevaluate if you want to play populist. So John and I talk a lot about populism. We talk about Andrew Jackson. We talk about Don, Donald Trump. And, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to, I don't know, cap, like captivate the populist audience and funnel them into the right direction. So this very, this struck me because I know that populists are going to go after the young people. They're going to try to get the, the, the young intellectuals to lead the other ones, to lead everybody else in their direction. What exactly are you seeing with this? What does this tweet mean to you? What, it, what was the story behind this? So I'd like to preface this by saying I have no inherent problem with populism as a as a movement. It's you know it's a reaction to societal problems um, that are real and need to be addressed. But what I see from as as a college student and as a aspiring writer, um, when I interact with other young conservative writers, you know, in today's world, you get a lot of populist talk from people whose backgrounds you wouldn't think would generate populist talk like that tweet specifically in, in young conservative writer circles. There are a lot of young writers that, that talk a big game about 
wanting to represent the common man or you know fighting for the masses and, and the common good of the people and they they idolize things like you know the the agrarian farmer right the the man who spends his whole life toiling in the fields you know or or working construction or you know some of these these manual labor jobs they they idolize jobs like that as something that really builds virtue and you know masculinity and something that the modern world has lost but they do so from a place where they've never had to do that sort of hard labor right a lot of these a lot of these kids go to preppy private schools um they want to be writers like clearly they they themselves want a desk job right as as i do they so the position they they talk about this from is very incongruent to the actual like day-to-day life of the lifestyles they want to that they they seem to idolize without understanding what it is so it sounds like you're describing somebody who's pretending to be somebody maybe they're not or at least tap into a lifestyle that maybe they don't necessarily understand fully for Uh, the benefit of the yeah that it might bring from the you know the people that might follow yeah exactly A, a big name example of this that it aggravates me whenever he talks about this is Tucker Carlson, you know, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the policies or the ideas he promotes, when he talks about representing the common man, you know, fighting for middle America, Tucker Carlson has lived on the East coast his entire life in like New York city. His background is very, is upper class. He lived a comfortable lifestyle. He's lived behind a camera his entire working career, which I don't disparage. I think it's good good for him that he's made a living. But when he talks about, you know, the factory worker as this sort of model citizen, the model lifestyle that more people should aspire to, I don't think he understands what that looks like, right? Because he's because he's he's never lived it. I don't imagine his family lived it when he was growing up. Right. He he has an image of this of these lifestyles that doesn't match up with actual reality. So what I take away from like a lot of the people that are, you know, that I see in that and Tucker's one of those people, I would think Trump is kind of one of those one of those people as well. You know, they always talk about representing the regular people, but it doesn't seem like they understand the regular people. And you can kind of tell that by the way that they talk, but also by the way that they act. And, I, you know, even if you had somebody that did, you know, um, by nature, come from a working class society, you know, family, grow up and kind of understand those values and virtues that are taught um, with labor. And then, you know, if you work in the industry, if you work, if you live in New York City for 30 plus years, you're work inside of, you know, the, you know, quote, media, you know, you might, you might become a little detached from it. I think like a, a really good leader would maybe reevaluate how they present themselves to as a populist leader of like I'm the working man or, or I I represent you maybe take some time one of my favorite uh leaders in history uh Teddy Roosevelt and he's very famous for you know as New York commissioner he went down and kind of walked the beat with the people now Teddy was he was of wealth he was he was a populist leader that was an intellectual who was kind of maybe didn't live that that day-to-day lifestyle that they did but he did take the time to like learn about it and understand it. Um, and so, you know, I'm worried to like throw barbs at people to say, Hey, you can't, you can't represent populism because you don't, you don't understand what it is to labor. But at the same time, you should at least take the time to like, listen to them. And I think 
that's where my frustration as a viewer comes in in a lot of circumstances. I just, I don't see a lot of representation from regular people on TV, whether it be from politicians or journalists, like you mentioned, of Tucker Carlson. No, I think, I think some of the, oh, I think there's like a disingenuous aspect to it too, because it's kind of like they're, they're quote, quote, speaking blue collar, unquote, if you will, but like, they're not really, they're just saying the phrases, they're saying the words, it's like, oh, hard work, you know, I understand you, but like what Scott's saying about like, they haven't really like actually uh, done that kind of work. And so it, it just, you know, like you said, it's, it's, um, it's incongruent. Like it doesn't really mesh with what they're saying. And I think it's, um, I, as we're talking about this, I wonder if like, maybe there is a deeper discontent that like sort of drives their own populism. And they, they've, someone like Tucker feels like the only way he can express that is by, by like speaking blue collar. And like, that's how he can connect with people because they're also discontented. And, um, you know, he lives in Manhattan and he has a $30 million job, but you know, maybe he's really unhappy and, um, and he sees how bad things are. And like, this is, this is how he gets with people. Like, is, is there something to that too? Or do we all think that that kind of um, it is really hollow and it's just, it's just a marketing ploy to get people to pay attention to his show so that he can sell ads to them of pillows and uh, dog food. <laughs> no, I think, I think disingenuous is the right word. I think it's, a bit of both, you know, I think there is something in, in folk like Tucker Carlson and, and Donald Trump, right? They, they are discontent with the current moment, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, and they, they, I think it is sort of a marketing ploy, not just for their show, but for their ideas, right? To, to talk about, to talk in, talk blue collar and just try to speak the language of these folk, Instead of saying, you know, here are the ideas that I think would be best for these groups of people, which is legitimate. Right? If you, if Tucker Carlson wanted to show and said, I think tariffs and industrial policy would be best for the people of Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, that's one thing. To say that I'm one of you, right? I understand your plight. That's that's just disingenuous, right? When Donald Trump, who actually has lived in New York his entire life, comes from, he's a billionaire, you know, comes from very upper class ways of living when he says i'm a man of the people you know i'm one of you that's just that's just not true on its face right but he but he speaks that language which is why i think they captivate so many folk because even if they're not telling the truth right or if they're not actually one of them right they speak the language well so it it, it captures eyes and gets you know people focused on their ideas and their plush toys and their the commercials for their fox tv shows and trump stakes and whatever else it is yeah i mean trump is yeah. oh, one like trump is weird though because he kind of was one of the people not that he was like sitting with him at the bar but he was on the tv with him at the bar like i was at uh, a couple episodes ago i was talking about going to the, some of the bars out in the small town wisconsin um in this place called club club ritz and we're just hanging out but i i, I noticed like wwe is on tv in the background now i'm not watching it but it's there. It's like available. It's a weekday night. Like that's what's on there. And like, who goes to do these WWE shows and shows up on your TV? Like Donald Trump, like he was kind of a, a man of the people in that respect. Not that he was doing, he was rolling up his sleeves and serving drinks at the bar, but like he was weirdly like there as someone else was. And you kind of, you get that kinship with him. And I think that's perhaps something that is, is, is honest where he says like, I'm one of the people because he was that entertainment for those, for the, for someone like that. Whereas someone like DeSantis, 
has never been on WWE as far as I know. Uh, probably would never would be. And like he doesn't show up there. Someone like Tucker Carlson is not going to be on WWE. So like he's not at that bar that everyone is else is at. The, you know, after a hard day's work, just having a couple of beers to relax. So I, like, I wonder if, if that's part of the thing too, is people saw someone's success by like speaking blue collar, if you will, again, bad way to describe what I think like that's probably the closest thing. And then um, someone like, so like Trump does that, but then someone else says, well, he's doing the same thing. I can speak, I can speak the same dialect, but you're so, you know, like, it's like when you come in and you speak a foreign language and you got a bad accent, like everyone knows you don't belong and they're just kind of polite, but they like, they don't really accept you, even though they maybe like let you hang around. But like, it, is that really what it is too? Like there is something to um, someone like Donald Trump coming in and tapping that fervor of discontent, being able to like speak the language, but then everyone else just being really hollow and especially like an Ivy league uh, a prep uh, student that you're talking about, like, they have never been to one of these dive bars and they've never been on WDVD and they've never been in this. And it is so hollow when they say that and everyone can understand that. Like, well, is I, that, yeah. Sorry. So like, what is it, what exactly is the student doing trying to like be the populist leader in a way or talk, you know, like you should, you kind of like, if you should speak what you know, right. And like speak to the group that you're in and lead them the best you can. And then like work outside of your group with other people in other groups and like build like, you know, different factions of group that work together, right? But you shouldn't just kind of try to take the microphone and lead everybody. You know, that's 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 Donald Trump's mentality. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, him and Tucker are very different in the fact, and Ron DeSantis as well, they're very different in the fact that Ron DeSantis and Tucker are intellectuals. They're, they're fervent readers, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, Donald Trump is, I mean, I, he's not like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any proof that he is, you know, he reads a I, lot of Twitter. He reads a lot of Twitter. I, I'm, and that's I'm about confident it. that he's not, you know, and that, you know, just the simplicity of being a reader versus being a non-reader puts you able to communicate in a different, like in different ways. Um, but like, and that's, so when you go to what Scott was talking about with the the people on the college campus who, that are at the Ivy League schools. And you talk about Ron DeSantis, who I believe went to Harvard. And you talk about, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, who's, you know, $30 million job at Fox News. You go, you guys should at least know better. You know, at the end of the day, you've read and you read a lot and you've read history. And what do we talk about on this show all the time? And I'm sure Scott is familiar with this. What is the greatest, like, uh, ailment of all republics, Plutarch says? is is the uh the difference between rich and poor the separation of rich and poor and you know that's what we've suffered through like through in the human history of of government evolution and even in our own nation that was the real like dividing you know line it was it was slavery and it was like finance capitalism and like the agrarian way of life and and never being able to like have that argument so like if you're the intellectual, if you go to Harvard, if you're Tucker Carlson, you should you should at least know better to be careful with your words. You know, explain what's going on as opposed to just do this thing, follow me. Um, somebody like Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump's just a classic, you know, example of somebody who just loves power, who's charismatic, and has the ability to gain get people to follow him. Um, Scott, what do you think? I think that's right. And going back to a point uh, John made about. Trump sort of being a, a man of the people because he was on TV there. 
that's I think that's a very true statement, and I think it's part of why, as as both of you mentioned, right, Trump did it so well, and the people who have followed have done it so poorly because yep. he actually was because he because he's not intellectual, and he was there on WWE, right? He, he his his life before the presidency, even if it was very rich, right, did connect with you know, the average middle American on a way that these intellectuals can't. But but because he did it, now you get people like Carlson and DeSantis and especially these young other young writers and young conservatives that I see all the time, they saw what Trump did and they, they want to replicate that, right? But because they're intellectuals and because they they're they're well read and they, they come from these prestigious schools, right? They don't come from a background to understand why what Trump did was effective. So it comes off hollow, right? And and disingenuous. But because they're well read, right? Because they they should know better, but they they know enough to try to shoehorn their way into the conversation, right? And and they can talk a good game. And so the reason they do it, right? The reason these young writers do all this is because they think that what Trump did is the wave of the future and they want to capitalize on that. Right. So they're, they're well-read. They're very intelligent. They could stand up there and say, here's what I believe as a, as a Harvard educated man or Yale educated man. Right. Here's what I think is best for America. Instead, they, you know, they say the lines, you know, I'm one of you. I understand your plight. I want to make working in factories great again. But they do it from a position of of elite education instead of you know experience. So it comes off hollow. But they they but they think they can get away with it because they think Trump represented a paradigm shift instead of just a moment of you know anger. Yeah, he definitely represented a moment of anger, uh, and I think it that moment hasn't completely passed yet, um, and. You know, you make a point about um, they can speak to this with knowledge, but maybe not with experience, you know, and it's it's not to say that, you know, you can be elite. And I think this is like this is the biggest confusion that sometimes comes in with like this argument about populism and wealth and all this stuff is that the idea that the person that has less or is that that is more of the common people wants the person that's of the elite stature of wealth to not have it. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what either one of us are saying here. What we're saying is like, it's, it is, it's knowledge, right? Like, don't speak for me if you don't know me. It's not to say that you can't know me. Like, instead of saying, telling me what I want, why don't you come down in here and talk to me? You know, like I see this at, you know, at a local level for representation in our, my local area with my, with my delegate, you know, constantly like saying things like vote for me. I'm out here representing my community but doesn't answer the phone when you call them, doesn't return your phone calls, doesn't seem to really want to discuss anything that you want to discuss, but spends a lot of time fundraising in Richmond, right? And it's like, that's the elite group, you know? You're, you can't, you, you know, I feel like all of these politicians and writers, they're talking out of both sides of their mouths, right? Like you're going to Harvard, you're spending no time with regular people, yet you're writing like you're a part of the common man or you're running for office in little old Gainesville, but you're spending a lot of time, you know, fundraising in Richmond or, you know, talking to your Richmond friends or whatever, as opposed to actually like representing the people that are trying to talk with you in your community. No, I think that's entirely correct. And I, I think, I, th I think a lot of these 
intellectuals would do well to come down and actually talk to people because when they when they try to speak the populist line from their position, they sort of over you know they infuse a lot of knowledge into it, which is good. A lot of like ideas, which is which is good, but they try to do it in a offhanded sort of talk blue collar kind of way. So it comes across as weird, right? If if you really want a good example of true like man of the people. You know, in the current moment, I'm sure you both saw Oliver Anthony's, you know, Richmond, rich man, north of Richmond. Or yes. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's that song. right? That's that's an actual like representation of just, you know, sort of populist discontent with what what's going on. Right. That's an example of of a he's not a Harvard educated man. He's not an intellectual. He's not he's probably he, he I imagine he reads, but he doesn't seem like a he's not a bookworm like some of us are. Right. But he's just expressing himself. Right. You know, going to talk to a man like him, like, hey, what's going on? Right. That's a good example of what the the common man actually wants and actually feels. Right. What Harvard educated politicians and writers say the common man wants isn't really a good representation. Well, you know what I the and I don't know if we can tie these together completely, but I, I always hear populist style candidates or writers kind of railing against the education, the elite like college education system. But I always it's I like they're all part of it. Like and I just I I I find it strange that you kind of rail against, you know, the the elites when you are one of the elites. You know, at least we're railing against the elites, but we're also saying, hey, we like the elites. We kind of want to be one of them one day. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not the end of the world, right? It's just about, you know, respect and understanding each other and listening, as opposed to just trying to flat out pretend that you are something that you aren't, you know? Well, part of what makes you elite, too, is not necessarily like what education you got, but kind of like what networks you're bought into. So like, if you, like, uh, I think DeSantis played baseball at Yale, and then went to Harvard Law School. So like, those are two elite networks. So you can read the same books at Harvard as you can read it like at any other great book school. Um, you can read the same uh, books at like Harvard law school that you read at any other law school, like the same common law, same tort, um, you know, the same constitution technically. Um, but it, what you really get, uh, and someone explained this to me, like when you go to Harvard law school, what you're really getting is like the connections and the network that you can then bring with you. And so like, that's what the law firm is hiring you for, for big law. Um, or what the clerk is hiring, the judge is hiring you for to clerk for, like the fact that you've got connections that you can bring with you that you can let leverage. It's not at all about your in intelligence. And I think that's where there is that disconnect where you say like, well, I'm, I'm one of the people, you know, but at the end of the day, like you could kind of go back to your citadel and you'd be, you'd be fine. Like you're not going to starve or anything like that. Um, whereas if you're kind of an average uh, American, like, you know, the grocery bill gets more expensive every day and you you have to start making cuts and stuff. And if you don't experience that, like um, you feel out of, you know, people understand that out of touchness. And I'm reminded of this picture of George H.W. Uh, Bush going to a grocery store and looking at one of the barcode scanners. And this is like brand new technology. He was just being the president, just trying to like understand like what's going, what the changes in America. But people were able to spin that picture. It's like, look at him. He's so out of touch. He doesn't know how a grocery store works. Um, and I, I like, I think like that's, that's some of that um, hollowness that comes, you know, like Oliver Anthony speaks from his heart and you, you really get a sense like when he's talking about like uh, people on welfare, 
like he probably knows people in welfare that are he knows that are just milking the system um whereas if you're just like a, you know again like you're a harvard educated uh, lawyer and you're talking about people in welfare like he probably doesn't know anyone on welfare when he's talking about that and so like there is the same words but there isn't the emotional weight behind it and uh, as i've come to discover politics is so much about emotion and i think that's where like a lot of these pseudo populists are are falling short here and not able to connect and then it just becomes like a raw power grab and it's like well um you know they, then they start attacking each other because they're not quite able to capture what they want to capture and they get upset about it and think like well uh you know trump's a phony because obviously from my perspective i'm saying the same things as he is and he's still getting people so he must be just be like lying to them or what you know whatever john you during that you described a spoil system. Did you did you notice that a system it's where all, you were picked it's on all full circle, as opposed it's all full to circle. A, <laughs> and and a spoil system typically appears uh, in a highly democratic populist era, which we are sitting in right now. So you know, if anybody, all of those elite you know people at their colleges, that's kind of what they should be talking about. You know, like if you're going to be writing about something, like write about what's happening. You know, so that gets. That takes me to to my next question for you, Scott. You you mentioned at the top, like you were, you you worked on a farm, or not worked on a farm, but you grew up on a farm. Uh, you uh, you're going to school. You're a writer. You think it's you know like this is your ambition. This is where you're moving for towards, and this is good. Progress is good in society. We're not trying to move people back or anything. But like, what can you do from your position as somebody who? maybe can relate a little bit more with the common man as a writer. Like what do you, what is your focus in your writing to try to like move the needle in the right direction to maybe spin somebody away from that, that elite guy who's maybe a little hollow in his writing and bring them towards you. Well, uh, two things. One, I try not to play the, the, the populist shtick card myself, but I, I try not to play up that unless it's relevant. Because I don't want to make the fact that I grew up on a farm my entire identity, right? I, I went to college on a scholarship. I'm, I want to be a writer, right? 30 years from now, if I'm successful, <laughs> I imagine I'll be disconnected some from what I grew up. But, you know, and two, I, I'd like to try to tell the truth, you know, in relation to not using that shit. I could just tell the truth as I see it, right? Write what I actually think. But I would like to spend some time. On a, as a something personal in my career, I would like like to spend some time traveling, like Middle America, and interviewing local politicians and local representatives and sort of local leaders to really see what they think is important. Because we there's such a disconnect between what is talked about in D.C. and New York and sort of the the bubble that captures everybody's attention and what actually happens on the ground. Right. If you go to any dive bar or your local grocery store or a, a high school baseball game across much of the country, nobody there is gonna cares what's about what's going on on Twitter. Right. Nobody there wants to know or wants to talk about the latest presidential blunder or whatever Biden said that day or did that day, whatever what niche thing Congress is fighting about. Right. The the issues they care about just aren't talked about ever and aren't represented. So I would like to spend some time going around and talking to those people and writing their stories and sort of talk about politics from their perspective. So um, you gave me a really good opportunity to plug my other podcast. Uh, it's called Thank You for Sharing. I do that 
in my small bubble as a uh, in my representative area i talk to small business owners people that i consider community leaders just regular people that essentially our local politicians just flat out ignore i give them the opportunity to share their story and what they're going through what's the issues locally that they care about um and yeah i i love that i love the fact that you want to do that i hope that more young journalists like yourself want to do that i think that's one of the big things missing in journalism right now is actual journalism. I see a lot of opinion pieces, but I don't really see a lot of stories written about other people. You know, I look back to like, you know, the muckraking time of, uh, of again, back to Teddy Roosevelt and what the, the journalist of that era did. And it was, you know, it was very targeted at corporations at the time, but it was still, it was just about telling stories at the end of the day. No, I think that's, that's very true. And I, I tried, I tried to do some of that this summer. Um, you know, I, one of one of the issues I, I write about a lot and I'm very passionate about is personal fiscal responsibility because it's overlooked in our national discussion. I, we talk about the national debt and from a government perspective. But what's not talked about is that a lot of Americans are deeply in debt themselves, mm-hmm. you know, credit card, housing, car debt. And they don't – it's getting worse by the day if you look at the statistics. But we don't talk about that because that's sort of, you know, the, your average man, you know, he spent too much on on his credit card and he's struggling and he'll figure it out. But that's those are issues that need to be written about and talked about more and people who need to be talked about more. And so I try to write about that and the solutions. I don't know if either of you know who Dave Ramsey is. Yeah, I've heard of him. Um, yeah, some good good advice in there. Yeah, like – but that's that's he's the he's the kind of guy who does speak to your average man, right? He, he speaks to the middle America who needs his advice because they're struggling. To the working class who's struggling to pay their credit card bill or their you know mortgage monthly, right? And that's stuff that doesn't get covered much in our national media because it's not an interesting topic, but it's an important topic. And that's so that's something I try to write about more because that's like here are some here are folks that you guys should listen to because they're genuine. And they do actually talk to you. They have actually been where you are. And we should refocus journalism on people like that, on like Dave Ramsey and like the people he helps, you know, and try to recenter our national discussion on those issues and those people. You know, and you know what I would love to see is uh, like a group of young conservative journalists finding people that should run for the United States House of Representatives. You know that I'm a big fan of uncapping the house. I know that you support uncapping the house. Is that correct? It is. All right. Just want to make sure. Why? Why thirty five? Why four thirty five? So, like, if we want any hope of doing that, we need qualified, educated, thoughtful speakers in the House of Representatives, um, and we don't have that. Like, we're so far away from that. It is insane, and it, you just talking to the people that have run for office scares me even more for how little they know about government. Like these people know a lot about winning elections, but they know almost nothing about government. And that is absolutely terrifying. And um, so one person I'm going to throw at you and I want you to maybe go out and learn about him. He's a principles first guy. I know that you kind of follow principles first a little bit. So uh, let me look up his name here. He, I met him he spoke there and I was just really impressed. He actually recommended this book to me. This is uh, oh, wow. okay. a Calhoun American yeah. uh, 
portrait. This is the best biography I've ever read. And I've read hundreds of biographies on great leaders. John Calhoun is, he's just a really interesting subject because of how absolutely brilliant he was, how he kind of like sold out his own arguments to, you know, to take, kind of take the easy way. He took the slavery way of mm -hmm. trying to win the argument. And, but it wasn't actually like, that wasn't his real argument, but it got completely lost. He just, he made a very calculated decision that was very poorly done. Um, but anyways, let's get back to uh, to this guy. Let me look it up real quick. Sorry. I got to go to my Twitter. Um, but as you're, as you're looking this up, like it is really important yeah. that we find people that are process oriented that understand what it's like to, to what, what you got to do once you're in office. Cause it's so easy to like run as an activist and to um, and it's tough to win an election, but like to just be an electioneer person. But then like once you're in, in the power that you've been seeking, like, you do have to have an idea of what to do with it and how to like to pull the levers and to work within the system, understand how the gears work and not to mess them up too much. Um, so, no, I agree. We need, we need to find people who want to win for the right reasons, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people run, they either run and don't care if they win or not because they know running is going to make them a lot of money and get them mm -hmm. name recognition, or they want to run to win because that night's cushy seat in DC comes with a lot of cocktail parties and a lot of you know access to that network that yep. they can use later in life. Luke, so we got to we have to find people who want to run to win to actually do the work. Right, and that know how to do the work. And so yep. this this guy's name is James Walner, okay? James and he, Walner. He uh he teaches at the University of Clemson and he writes for Reason and Law and Liberty according to his uh Twitter handle. I I heard him speak at um at Principles First and mm -hmm. I was I was very taken with him. I went to him and I told him that he should be in the House of Representatives and he said no, that's not me. And my argument is we need him. Like our country very much needs him and people like him. And I know that he doesn't want to do it, but I will keep saying that he needs to do it and i will keep asking looking for people like him to do it because i know how absolutely dire the situation is um because i've read the same books he's had he's read and i know that he knows how dire the situation is um and so you know maybe with a little bit of uh you know just encouragement we can f we can get people like that to run for office again and, and allow them to know that it's going to be about the ideas and the debate as opposed to the electioneering process, the profit and the fundraising, you know, because that's that's why these people stay away. They don't want to do it because they have to do this other really nasty job of fundraising in order yeah. to win office. Yeah, especially in the House, right? You get elected for a two-year seat. and your first six months, you sort of spend learning how it works. And the next six months, you spend learning everybody else and, you know, meeting people and doing the the typical networking stuff and then the next year you have to fundraise for your next election and you right. just do the same process over and over again so so speaking of people who should run <laughs> jeff i hear there's an open senate seat in a couple of years in virginia <laughs> so i'm definitely not running for senate um, well. <laughs> but i could tell you so there is a guy in virginia running right now who i think might be a good fit his name's eddie garcia we interviewed him on the show i've kept in touch with him he seems pretty legit he you know, it's not like he doesn't I don't think he knows government like, you know, maybe Walner know, knows government, but he knows it enough to do it. Yeah. Right. And he and I think the most impressive part is he seems humble enough to listen. And like, that's the thing that we're kind of missing in a lot of these politicians. You know, what I say is the ones that bother to text me back, those are probably the good people. Right. They're the ones that are willing to listen 
And, you know, even when they disagree, like he disagrees with me, other politicians will disagree with me and they'll at least tell me why they disagree. Those people I find, you know, like I would vote for those people, but the ones that just ignore you, they're like, I disagree with you, but I'm not going to tell you why, you know, it's like, do you really disagree? Do you understand what I'm saying? You're like, I start to question it. Um, now there is a house seat. House is where I plan to go. I, I okay. plan to go to the house. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I'm going to be ready. It's next year because it's every two years and I just ran. So I don't think I'm going to be running, ready to run next year, but maybe the, maybe what, what year is it right now? It's 2023. So maybe in 2026, I'll be ready to go. I look forward to it. I'll make sure to, to write about you when you do. I'll, I'll <laughs> add you to my, my portraits that I collect. Yeah. Maybe we can get John to run for the Senate. Hey, there you Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> um. So what about, so you're from South Dakota, correct? Yep. Okay. Now, South Dakota politics and Florida politics, you kind of know a little bit about both of those, I assume, right? I do. All right. What small, like, I don't want to say small, that's a bad word. What, like, what leader have we not heard of from either North Dakota or Florida that you're like, Hey, you should just look into this guy. I I he's, he or she has been balanced and fair They They like to talk about issues. Like, is there anybody like that in your circle that you could share with us? So Florida, I'd have to think about, um, cause I'm, because I'm not a resident here. I don't vote in the state. So I'm, and because it's, of, because of who all lives in Florida, the discussion's been so nationalized. So I'd have to think about that one. South Dakota, though, our one House representative, his name's Dusty Johnson. He doesn't get a lot of media coverage. You know, he's the one guy from South Dakota. He is a very nice guy who's very committed to doing the job, and he's very responsive. I met him when I was when he he first got elected in 2018. I met him when I was 16. I went to a campaign rally because I was interested in his race. I was 16. I couldn't vote. Right. I couldn't I wouldn't be able to vote for another two years. He spent 20 minutes talking to me at his rally to some 16 year old guy because I, I was interested in his campaign. He wanted to talk to me. And then a few years later, when tr when Trump's second impeachment was going on, I I tweeted something at him because I was wondering how he felt about it and whether he was going to vote for it. And his his campaign reached out like a day later and said, hey, we'd love to set up a call with you and the representative to talk about this. And he got us, you know, they sent me his phone number. I called, talked to him within an hour. He disagreed with me on the impeachment, but he sat down and, and listened to me and talked to me about it. So, which, you know, even in a state of small South Dakota, he represents 800,000 people. It's hard to do that with everybody, but he makes the effort. So I, I think, I think he deserves more, more attention than he gets because he's just a very a nice guy, hardworking. He's not in it for the flamboyant cocktail parties right he's he's kind of quirky he wears an orange tie and he, he makes instagram videos to expo explaining to his voters what he's voting on so really neat dude yeah that's if you got to be careful with those guys with orange ties that's uh that's trouble right there <laughs> no I, I like that um that he didn't respond like it's some kind of offhanded tweet or something dismissing you that like was a call that was set up like i've experienced that many times that sometimes people will text you something and Jeff, you said you appreciate when people text you back, but I, I think like, well, a those texts sometimes get screenshotted, so you got to be careful. Um, you know, and there's only so much you can put in so many characters, but like, it, it's really helpful to like have a conversation with someone, and to sort of like, um, you know, like they ask you a question, but it's better to like understand the full context they bring into it, and then you can kind of 
explain the whole context as you understand it and then, you know find where you disagree find where you agree um and maybe nothing comes out of it and you know no no minds are changed but i think like that's a constructive way to do it rather than some kind of flippant like hey so and so like you're you're stupid like the, no construction there that's just pure destruction so do you know why do you know why we live in the political environment where that is acceptable though populism is that what you no scott do you happen to know oh so it's it's andrew jackson oh yes oh it's it's, it's andrew jackson okay so like all right so it's andrew jackson he he put in force this idea of majority rule and force right and like the irony is calhoun calhoun was his nemesis but they were both democrats right and calhoun fought against Jackson because of the minority rule, but Calhoun was fighting for secession. The problem with secession was, or not secession, nullification. The problem with nullification was that it was going to be an instrument to preserve and protect slavery. Now, this argument got all kind of tied up together, and ultimately Calhoun kind of wins because he was able to force the um, force the the the, abomin- the tariff change and South Carolina didn't have to nullify the law because the law was changed, right? But going forward was this idea of Calhoun's that power must meet power. And what it, and, and it, he Calhoun himself adopted Jackson's idea of majority rule once it came to um, acquiring Texas, right? When he was secretary of state. And this was something that he was very against for a really long period of time, but ultimately he kind of like, he took the shortcut. He took the easy way to what he thought was going to preserve like the Southern way of life and the Southern economy, which, you know, for him, it was more about the idea of like finance capitalism, basically replacing slave labor with like wage labor. Um, and that wage labor was also slave labor. He saw a difference between slavery and like, it was like free labor and slave labor were different. I'm getting a little off here, but I'll, I'll bring it back. Um, and so anyways, it was this, this majority rule and Calhoun throughout his career and in, uh, one of these books behind me, the discourse of government, he talks about the congruent majority and he explains in his nullification, how important that is to make sure that the majority never rules the minority. And that's how Madison kind of set up the government. Um, it's, it's very well articulated by Calhoun, but again, because he, he scraps his own ideas. He takes the shortcut and he gives in to this idea of majority rule. And so from then forward, as a nation, we've consisted with it. We've kind of forgotten the fact that, yeah, you're supposed to like write things into the Constitution and make them amendments. You should be getting 65 to 70% of, of people on board with something be- before making it permanent, right? Or other, everything else should be temporary um, as, so you're not oppressing a group of people. Love speechless. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just like I got side. I got you know. I've been reading this book all day, and I just really wanted to talk about it. I'm sorry. No, it, I I'm gonna have to add it to the reading list. I've I've read Russell Kirk in the Conservative Mind talks about Calhoun's idea of concurrent majorities some, but I need to look more into it because it's very fascinating political theory. So I'll, I'll add that book to the list. Yeah, I think 
I think if, if you want to go like what every young conservative writer should be doing right now in an age of like spoiled party politics with, um, you know, majority power ruling everything, they should very much be like studying Calhoun's theories on the congruent majority. And, and I know it's like, you know, people don't want to touch Calhoun because he was the slave guy, you know, and like it, it's, you know, there is this idea of what slavery was and is and then there is what it was and is and you can just kind of throw all that stuff out the window and just read his ideas on government and and learn something is what i tell people you know yeah. <laughs> well i mean we do that for thomas jefferson and george washington and james madison you know it it is hard because because yeah. because calhoun will forever be remembered as the slavery guy because that was a, a big that is a big part of his legacy but as Kirk writes, he his writings on government are interesting and worth studying, separate from his practical applications of them. Yeah, I think I found it interesting because, like, he wasn't as much for slavery as I thought. Like, he kind of just co-opted the argument for, like, so he's the intellectual who kind of, like, allowed the other populist, ambitious people to ride his coattails. Like, so I think like in order to be like a really successful populist leader, you need to be able to do two things. You need to learn, you need to lead two groups, a small group of intellectuals and a large group of non-intellectuals, right? And in order, you, you have to have two different arguments for them, right? Because the intellectuals are often, are the non-intellectuals are not often going to understand these arguments or vice versa, right? As we've already talked about it. So, you know, somebody like Polk, for example, who was instrumental in moving the country forward and expanding slavery. He was able to take Calhoun's argument and lead that small circle next to him and rationalize all the bad things he was doing, but then pitch the larger argument to the slaveholder, you know, slaveholders of the uh, the southern people and say, "Hey, they're going to go after, you know, your way of life and all these things." So he was able to lead two different groups in one direction with two separate arguments. Um, and that it's dangerous when that happens, I think. That's, that's uh, uh, funny you talk about that because I like that's the art of rhetoric in a nutshell, like being able to speak in the same way with a similar message to different groups th at the same time. So, uh, you know, I, I would say like that's another art that's lost too is the ability to speak to m multiple groups. And perhaps that's why a lot of these populist things we talk about now, like ring so hollow, because it is just like laser focused to one group and laser focused to another group without trying to consider like the whole or, or like the the atmosphere that this message is going to go out into. Right. So Scott, before we head out of here today, I am curious, who is your favorite thinker of the past? I have an idea who it might be. Favorite thinker of the past. Ooh. All right, I'll go with a dead one. Oh, that's tough. Um, probably Russell Kirk. One of your favorites. One of your favorites. I'll go favorite. with Russell Kirk because he's he was just very, just and a very, very smart man who wrote very prophetic things about the problems of his time that still plague us today, and he's a beautiful writer. Like setting aside the content of his writing, the way he wrote is just astounding. So I, I enjoy reading his work a lot. I'll have to read more of him. He is great. I've got that ringing endorsement. 
John, what about you? What's your favorite thinker of the past? I haven't asked you in a while. Um, is it still Cicero? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got to be Cicero because it's foundational. Um, what have I re- recently? I've started reading this book by Orestes Brownson. Interesting guy. He was. Oh, uh, uh, which one? Uh, the American Republic, right? Yes. Yeah. That's on the list too. I've heard um, because I've read Tocqueville, you know, Democracy in America. I've heard a number of people tell me that Brownson's work is sort of the American edition of that. Like mm-hmm. it's Democracy in America written by an American. So you have to, to let me know how it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm still through the, working through the introduction and it's a long introduction. So that's why it's taking a while, but it's, <laughs> um, it's kind of framing in. It's, it's very interesting. So I'm, I can't wait to get to like the full meat of the book, but um, you know, he's like, he was a transcendentalist and he kind of moved and eventually becomes like Catholic. Um, but it, one of the key things that the, introduction talks about is like this idea of like once you found the truth like you don't just kind of like let other people have the microphone so to speak so i as it's been framed so far i think like his ideas like either would become this sort of multi uh cultural um pantheistic society which kind of is what we are i would say or we become like a fully catholic country because like Catholicism is the only thing that's congruent with like the American Republic. So very interesting. Um, we'll see, you know, I'll, I'll read through it I'll, or report back and uh, let you know what I think. But like, I, that, that's kind of what has been framed so far in this introduction. So I'm curious to see sort of what his arguments are as, as that goes. Am I the only one that just reads the antebellum period all the time? Am I like, am I just like alone there? No, no, Jeff, <laughs> you're not because I'm actually all I've, that's what I'm like actually reading, reading, but I'm, I've got this commute. So I go back to my audiobook. So I'm, I'm re-listening to what hath God wrought by, um, oh, who is it? Uh, actually, I don't know who wrote it, but it's part of his Oxford American history series, but that's antebellum and I'm doing it with the Jackson stuff. And, um, you know, so no, you're not the only one. All right. I want to get the whole world reading about the antebellum period. It's the, because it's, it's like, it's forgotten. I mean, like, I think, Antebellum's forgotten. I think the progressive era is sort of like swept under the rug because it's probably too embarrassing for the progressives. Yep. Um, and I think that the post-Civil War is also a really tough time in our country where we kind of like, eh, it'd be better if we forgot about that. But I think it's not better if we forgot about it. It's better if we read it, understand what went wrong, what was good, so, you know, because there's always good things. Um, and then, then we can like, we can work with that because like the, the post-war, post-Civil War period sets up the progressive era in so many ways but if you don't if you just go from like abraham lincoln was shot to woodrow wilson in world war one you're like you know like that's kind of how history is taught and i don't know that's just like a gap because like you get to the civil war at the end of school year and you're like uh we're out of time sorry kids or if it really is sort of like this um deliberate effort to not talk about it but like i think that's a huge blind spot in american history antebellum the what led up to the civil war and it's painful because again like it's discussions about slavery and sort of we having to reconcile that people were very uh, in f- much in favor of an institution that's that's not really good. Um, and then post-Civil War, where you're sort of reckoning with what happens with trying to bring this country back together after you fought a war with where people who were against slavery and people who were for slavery killed each other over this issue. So I like I think like that's that's one way we can help our country is to get um, get better at talking about these painful things. So yeah. no, I, I think you're you're in line with with studying and talking about antebellum America. I mean, it's kind of like uh think of it like think of our country as just one big family, okay? 
and, it, and everybody can relate with the family dynamic because everybody's born into a family. And whether you have a good family or a bad family, you probably experience some pain and trauma along the way. Maybe that's negative pain and trauma that is you know brought on by a bad parent or not. Or maybe it's just regular life pain and trauma. You just you you lost a loved one early on because of an accident or something like that. But it never works to ignore the problems. Mm-hmm. And it never works to not talk about the problems. And I think that's the biggest problem that we have as a nation right now is we don't understand what our problems are and we don't talk about them. We have a whole bunch of people making money and leading groups of people who talk about the wrong things. They're talking about things that are going on now that are a result from problems that started hundreds of years ago. They don't understand the foundational issues and they're not working towards that direction. That's why, you know, bringing it back to our topic at the beginning, the elites that are leading the populists, right? I think they have an obligation to do better, to lead better. Leading is about teaching. Leading is about uh, helping people understand where they come from and where they want to go. Leading is not telling people what their problems are or how you're going to fix them. Um, leading is about compromise and debate. I, could, I couldn't agree more. I think that's very well said. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. I, as somebody who reads your writing, I've, it's always good to get a nice compliment from somebody like you. Um, so that is going to be our show for tonight. We're just running out of time here. I got I to gotta get to bed because those kids are going to get up early. So uh, just a few things before we get out of here. John and I have our Madisonian Republican Small Business Showcase coming up at Great Main Brewery on September 16th. Uh, you can RSVP on our Facebook page, the Great Main Facebook page, or the Going Gainesville Facebook page. Uh, we've got lots of uh, wonderful small businesses out for vendors. Um, our Madisonian team will be there, um, and we'd love to, you know, for you to come out, chat, maybe have some debate with us. Um, and uh, we have a few other podcasts coming out. Uh, I mentioned earlier my thank you for sharing podcasts. I've got two great episodes coming out next week or this upcoming week uh, with a local politician, a Democrat who ran for office for Manassas City Council, uh, my good friend DJ. And then Matt from Great Maine appeared on the, on the podcast so we could talk about you know the, what he's building there in the community around uh, the brewery. So uh, John, do you have anything you'd like to say to the people before we get out of here? And I'm just grateful people listen. Scott, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm glad we didn't scare you away after the first time. And uh, you know, we, lo- we love reading what you say on Twitter, sorry, X, and uh, on Substack. And um, you know, keep it up. We're rooting for you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to come talk to you guys. Uh, the, the work you guys do is incredible. And I, I look forward to seeing where it goes. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Peace and love.